Welcome to the Natural Selection Presents Growth. Welcome back listeners to another episode of the Natural Selection Presents. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Naomi. Hello. We have Nick. Hello. And I am the other Nick. Hello. So for any listeners who haven't met us before, Nick, do you want to tell the listeners who we are? We're a group of taxonomists who want to bring our passion for nature into the wild. Each week, we gather and talk about the natural world. In the first section of our podcast, we talk about nature news and interesting research from the past week. And in the second section, we talk about a different theme, how it relates to flora and fauna around the world. This week's theme is growth. Excellent. Thank you, Nick. So how's your week's been? Have you had any exciting animal interactions? I would love to say yes. I think actually I can say yes. I spent most of the week like totally sucked into a fantasy book, which I admit to my own chagrin. But it, you know, it, it was what it was. Uh, but I did get out for a little bit and I noticed that there are so many more birds here already. I mean, spring is really springing here in Berlin, despite the weather today. It's quite grim. Uh, but I saw a young hawk being chased by like a dozen blackbirds. Uh, and I thought, I don't know, it wasn't so close to it, but I saw it in the distance and watched it for a while. And the hawk was not so bothered, but, uh, it did slowly circle away from where the, the jackdaws were. That's cool. I also noticed that spring has sprung in London the last couple of weeks as well. I've been noticing a lot of blossoms have come out. It's really pretty. Some beautiful pink and white blossoms. I've also seen a couple of magnolias. They're not in bloom yet, but I can see that they're they're getting close. The buds are there, which is really lovely. It's it, it definitely like you can feel the also got hailed on. So that was like and also kind of a a spring vibe where it was like nice and sunny one second and then torrential downpour of hail the next second. So yeah, it was it was it was good. Mine was bird based. I went for a walk in Volkspark and. There was a pond, and the pond had admittedly been cordoned off by, uh, like, you know, those uh, metal grates that, like, if you really wanted to, you could get past it, but it's clearly ever like, don't walk here. In that pond area was a picnic table, which obviously you're not allowed to sit at, and something had taken the chance to claim the picnic table, and standing on the bench was a mighty heron. Ah. And as I walked past, it just stared at me. Surveying its kingdom. Yeah, it's like, picnic? But I wasn't allowed because of COVID. Yeah, yeah. Too close. You can't get too close. No, no, exactly. I mean, the worst thing they need is a sore throat because they've got such a long throat. Can you imagine how uh, most of your body would be sore? Yeah, that would be terrible. So uh, thank goodness that we've not given herons corona. So I suppose we should get on with the news. Nick, I believe that you have some news on perhaps our closest friends. I do, Nick. I My research is about cats that I found today. It's a study done by some researchers at Kyoto University who were looking. It was actually, they, it's the second time they've done a study like this. And I'll explain the experimental design in just a minute. But they were looking at cat behavior and particularly how they observe social interactions among humans. So humans evaluate other people based on interactions that they observe between third parties, even when they those interactions don't have a direct relevance to them. And that social sort of evaluation isn't just limited to humans, but 
also to animals that we engage with often, like dogs and cats. So these researchers were trying to figure out how cats would evaluate other humans based on watching their interactions. So I guess, okay, I'll explain the experimental design and I'll, get, I'll tell you the results. So basically they had cats and dogs in the earlier experiment watch as their owners first tried unsuccessfully to open a container and get something out of it, and then requested help from someone sitting nearby. In one sort of path of the experiment, the helper path, the second person would help the owner to open the container, whereas in the other path, the non-helper path, the person, the actor uh, taking part in the experiment, refused to help and turned away. And then there was a third person acting as a control on the other side of the owner who didn't engage. After the interaction, both the person who had either helped or not helped and the neutral person offered food to the cat and the dog in the earlier experiment. And they recorded many times during this experiment which person the cat and the dog food from. So there could either be sort of different different ways of going about this, but what the researchers have hypothesized and what they're testing here is either a positive affiliation towards people who help or a negative avoidance of people who don't are sort of there too, if there is a reaction, is what they're expecting. Dogs will avoid the people who didn't help their owners, which seems really sweet of them. And cats don't care. They will go pretty much at random to either person. And far from sort of, I think, the the, the, the knee-jerk reaction is to anthropomorphize the, anthropomorphize the cats and to say, well, they're just cold. They're so heartless. They don't care about their owners. They don't care about the social interactions. But the researchers have a different view on this. They say that they maybe don't have the same social evaluation abilities as dogs, or um, they don't recognize that behavior as something negative. They are not raised from pack animals. They're not social animals, cats really. They're solitary hunters. And unlike dogs, they have been only recently domestic. I think the domestication of the cat is um, can be traced to historic times, and the bringing in the cat to the house is only a very modern invention. Uh, sorry, a modern adaptation, if you will, of living with animals when kitty litter was invented in the 1950s. So cats have only been recently domesticated. They're solitary animals, and maybe they just don't have this interest in third-party social interactions that dogs would have with their owners. So far from thinking that cats are heartless, um, which, I don't know, cat owners defend or, or support, it seems that dogs really do react to this sort of thing, which I thought was cool. That was such a cool experiment. I have some news. It's not about dogs or cats. It's perhaps about the enemy of cats. Birds. Specifically, songbirds. So this was a study published in Royal Society Publishing. Rapid behavioural response of urban birds to COVID-19 lockdown. So obviously our behaviour as humans changed quite rapidly when uh, COVID locked down. But what impact would this have on urban birds, birds that we often interact with? So what this study was looking at is they used citizen scientists and they found 126,000 records collected by um, citizen scientists in northeastern Spain. And they were able to use data collected before lockdown and post-lockdown, so they used the pre-lockdown stuff as a baseline data. And what they found is, so what they found is that birds, the number of birds in a city did not increase necessarily in urban areas, but they did become more noticeable. 
And there's a few things around this. So there was a hypothesis that as we sort of left cities, or not left cities, but stayed in our house, so our prevalence was less in the cities, that perhaps birds from uh, uh, other areas would come in and into the city to exploit these environments. But they didn't find this. What they found is that most of the ones being noticed were urban birds. And urban birds don't really exist in the countryside around cities, not at least not the ones they were studying. So they weren't flocking in from around. It was just that they were being noticed more. And birds that didn't live in cities still weren't being noticed. So what this showed is rather than being a change in the number of birds, is that there was a change of behavior within the birds who lived in cities. And this was quite amazing. So there was an, uh, a change in bird detectability, especially during the early morning. And what this means is the birds had changed the time that they sang. Because this was northeastern Spain. What was interesting is in this area that rush hour coincides with when the sun rises. And obviously birds who live in cities, they still like birds, want to sing and attract mates. So they tend, their behavior changes, that they tend to sing in mid-morning. And what I didn't realize, I didn't know until I read the study, and I must confess, I don't know a great deal about birds. But there's a strong pressure for birds to sing at the optimal time of the day to sort of get a mate or, or display their territory. And this moment is dawn because the physical properties of the atmosphere enhance acoustic transmission. And this means that the birds can reach a maximum audience. And what's amazing is now that dawn was no longer rush hour, the birds that for many, many, many years, like at least their lifetimes, their parents' lifetimes, that sort of thing, had been seeing mid-morning, switched to dawn. And suddenly became much more noticeable at this time. That's my news. Uh, I noticed me and Nick went for things you might find out on the street. But Naomi, you've got things that don't really exist anymore. Exactly, yeah. So uh, my news this week was looking at really, really old things. The oldest fossil evidence of complex animal life, actually. So this was a piece of work that was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And the researchers were from the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. And it was looking at the Ediacara biota. So, as I mentioned, it's the oldest fossil evidence of metazoan life. So, metazoans are multicellular animals. So, what they did was they looked at four representative taxa from this White Sea assemblage, which is a very well-preserved assemblage of these fossils. And they look, wanted to identify developmentally controlled characters. And they wanted to look at how these characters compare to modern organisms and similar traits in modern organisms. Because they wanted to try and work out what the underlying genetic elements might be and what traits they had. So they did take these taxa as animals. There have been alternative ideas proposed for them. But I think the there's multiple lines of evidence that they are animals, so this is how they interpreted the fossils. This analysis showed that the genetic pathways for multicellularity, axial polarity, musculature, and a nervous system were likely present in some of these early animals. So I won't go into everything that they did in, in the work, but some of the, the key characters that they picked out, there's mobility in Kimberella, Icaria, and Dickinsonia. And these have been attributed to muscular activity and muscles are tissues that are composed of multiple cell types. So this shows there seem to be multicellularity in these animals. Another thing is that 
the animals, some of these animals can also feed. So Kimbrella and Icaria, which suggests the presence of a mouth and a gut and potentially a through gut. So they haven't actually found these preserved structures, but it does suggest it. There also seems to be functional regionalization in some of these animals and the axial polarity and related body patterning is observed in all four of the taxa that they looked at. Another really important thing as well is not only what they seem to find present in these animals, but also what isn't present in these animals. So there seems to be lacking evidence for like major differentiation of body units. So there doesn't seem to be distinct organs. There doesn't seem to be localized sensory machinery or appendages. And so this is a really cool piece of work because basically they're trying to work out what was actually had already developed in these really early fossils. So they they did this by looking at the features, trying to work out what they were most related to, and then looking at what in those animals, the fe- what genetic mechanisms underlie those features. So I thought it was a cool piece of research. Yeah, answering a lot of big questions, that one. And it's quite impressive that they were able to extrapolate some of these things. I think that does bring us to the end of the news, but please join us after this short break where we'll be back to talk about our theme, growth. Welcome back, listeners, where we're here to talk about our theme, growth. Now, it's an important part and one of the key aspects of life. So there's many different ways that life can grow. Yeah, so I wanted to go for something that I don't usually talk about on this podcast, but I want to talk a little bit about plants. I want to specifically talk about photomorphogenesis. And that's kind of a fancy way of saying light-mediated development. So as you're probably aware, light is super important for plants because that's how they get their food. So plants change how they grow and develop because of light. So, so for example, seed germination can be controlled by, by light. So when seeds are exposed to light, this allows them to, to germinate and you can do different experiments, which you probably may have done at school. I certainly did different ones in school where you grow seeds in dark or, or compared to light. I like the idea that they made you do all your lessons in the dark, Naomi. <laughs> well, we were in the light. We just put the plants in a cupboard. <laughs> Another thing that plants do is that they change what kind of state they might be in. So they change between what being a vegetative or a flowering state, depending on the light. It's called photoperiodism. This is how plants flower and grow at different times of either the day or the year. So they use photoreceptors and plants have different types of photoreceptors. They're able to distinguish different types of wavelengths and different types of light. And one thing I particularly wanted to focus on was phototropism. And so what this is, is plants growth towards light. So I realized as I researched this that it was kind of a complicated topic, but I'd already sort of spent some time looking at it, so I decided to persevere. So I'm going to give a little bit bit of a simplified version because I think there's a lot of technical stuff in this. And also I think it's a topic that isn't fully understood yet. I don't think they understand all the mechanisms of how plants actually do this, but I'll try my best to give as as good an explanation as I can. Something that's really important in this are called auxins. So these are a family of plant hormones and they help control plants' growth towards light. So in the tips of the growing stems and roots, this is where auxin is made. 
So this is known as the apical meristem, and then the auxins can diffuse to different parts of the plant. Unequal distributions of these hormones is what can cause unequal growth rates in plants and shoots. So the auxins change the rate of the elongation of the cells and how and control the growth and the direction of the stems and roots. So the stems and roots actually respond differently to, to concentrations of auxins. In the stems, the cells grow more, and in the roots, they grow less. So this basically means that the stems are positively phototropic, so they grow towards light, whereas the roots are negatively phototropic, they grow away from light, which, you know, makes sense is what you would see as you look at a plant. So I actually want to look at specifically how this auxin works. And like I mentioned, it's something that's not really fully understood. So I'm going to try and give as best an explanation as I can from what I understood and also what what seems to be known at the moment. So they're not 100% sure what, what actually causes the differentiation of the auxins. They think it's to do with auxin transporters and these auxin transporters respond to photoreceptors, but it's not fully understood yet. But what they've been able to work out the auxins do is they activate proton pumps. And this kind of causes a cascade, but what the result of this cascade is, is that the cell walls sort of get weaker, and it also causes an osmotic gradient. So basically, the water wants to get into the cell, and because the cell walls are weaker, it means that there's more room for the cells to move. So the cells basically expand and get larger, and so on the way from the light, on the dark side, the cells elongate, and this causes bending, so the stem grows towards the light. I think a topic like that fundamentally underlines why we're so lucky to have Naomi on the podcast, because when she thought about growth, she thought about how plants grow and the mechanisms behind it. Uh, And my initial thought was bamboo grows quickly. So that's why I'm here to talk about bamboo. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's quite a popular thing. You can often find it. And it's famous for growing quickly. And some of the numbers are quite amazing. So it can grow up to some species can some species of bamboo can grow 90 centimetres in a day. Uh, Nick, that's about three feet. Uh, so you can sit and literally watch bamboo grow. It can grow as high as a 10-storey building in eight weeks. So about 30 metres in eight weeks. There's a reason it can do this. If you think of how long it would take a tree to grow 30 metres, that's a staggering length of time. If you often ask people how long that tree has been in their garden, they might say like 20, 30 years or something like that. Not eight weeks. So why is this happening? Well, there's a very good reason for that. And the fundamental reason is that bamboo, not a tree. Absolutely not a tree. As I'm sure many of you know, it's a type of grass. And grass grows differently from trees. So what trees do is when they want to grow larger, essentially, is mitosis. That the cells divide and become two cells. And this means there's an extra cell. Now, you definitely know that cells are very, very small. So adding another one doesn't add a lot of growth. So it takes many, many years of adding cells to grow to the height of 30 metres. So how on earth are bamboo able to do it so quickly? Well, it does something that all grasses do. And that is, before they start growing, they actually have all of the cells ready to go. So all of the cells have been produced underground. And the way they grow is through cell elongation, is that they fill these cells with water. And the cells get bigger, and the bamboo shoots get bigger, 
and it means that they can grow exceptionally rapidly through this mechanism. But there's some problems with this because, as you know, one of the main differences between an animal cell and a plant cell is that plants have a cell wall to keep their structure. So wouldn't this cause huge problems for the grasses? Well, they have a chemical called auxin that they can release, which make their cell walls flexible and inflatable. So as they pump water in, their cell walls can actually stretch and grow. And also there's these sort of strings, these uh, these fibres of the cell wall. In the bamboo and grasses, they're all horizontally aligned. It's a bit like, uh, do you know those light fittings you can buy from Ikea, the ones that you sort of hang off your ceiling light, and you can buy them that uh, flat paper, but when you pull them out, uh, they're suddenly very long. Uh, it's exactly like that. So as they fill with water, that's how the cell wall can stretch. Now, this is all well and good for most grasses, and you'll notice that lawns grow pretty quickly as well. That, um, yeah, there's a bit of grass there. It can get pretty tall pretty quickly. But the grass you see probably doesn't reach 30 metres high. So there's something extra that bamboo can do. And that is it can strengthen its cell walls by depositing more material onto them as they grow. And this creates an incredibly strong structure, which means that even when they're 30 metres high, which would normally make them very susceptible to sort of wind and weather, they can stand tall for a long, long time and withstand the wind in, say, a forest. So why would you bother doing this if you're bamboo? What's the benefit of growing so quickly? Well, if there's a part of the forest which there's a gap in, um, it pays to be able to fill that gap as quickly as possible because there's limited sunlight in an area with high vegetation. So the one that can grow quickest can exploit that sunlight first and also has the added benefit of blocking sunlight from other competing organisms so that they won't grow next to it and steal their nutrients. So it grows up and fills this gap in the forest as quick as possible so nothing else will block its sunlight and it's able to get that food from the sun and continue living. And the other thing I want to talk about bamboo is we probably most closely associate it with Asia. And this is where the very fast growing bamboo in the bamboo forest is, is places like uh, China and Japan, those sort of temperate regions. And one of the most interesting things I've heard about with bamboo is when looking at human evolution, the way they used to track where humans had traveled is we tended to leave something behind. And it wasn't bones because they could disappear quite easily. Do you know what they generally used to track people around by finding? Tools. Yeah, it's the flint tools. They're really <laughs> identifiable. The tool making process would leave very identifiable flakes of stone and even the tools themselves might be abandoned because you could remake them later down the line. So why, why would you bother carrying them around? So you'd often find these abandoned tools in places where humans had settled. Now, the problem is, is when you get to Asia, all of a sudden these tools disappear, which would imply that there's no people there. But you might have noticed there's actually quite a lot of people in China. So they definitely did go there. So where were the tools? And one scientist nowadays thinks he has the answer because he was able to build the entire toolkit using bamboo. And this wouldn't remain because it's an organic material. So all of the leftovers would just decay. So this bamboo toolkit would be lost to time. So this actual huge, quick growing, sturdy material could have advanced humans through that continent and helped them spread and grow. 
Um, it's even used today in, in quite practical terms. In places like Hong Kong, they use bamboo for scaffolding, even when building things such as skyscrapers, because it's so strong and sturdy. Which is quite an amazing thought. They're sort of trusting their lives that high by standing on grass. And perhaps the most useless fact you'll ever know about uh, bamboo. You might think that a lot of these things are record breaking, but it may be record breaking in a way that you didn't know because bamboo was the material used for the needle in the first phonograph. Whoa. Yeah. You really brought the bamboo today. I did. I wanted to bamboozle the audience. <laughs> you've, you've done it. <laughs> I am, I'm really stuck on the Ikea chandelier paper expansion cell wall metaphor. That's like melted in my brain now. <laughs> cool. The topic I want to talk about today is not really related at all to what you just talked about, Nick, except in the thing that I can't think about thinking, stop thinking about, which is those expanding cell walls, sort of, loosely. I'm, I'm going to talk about animals and how they grow, but really about how different animals grow differently. Well, you were talking about structure, and you're talking about physiology and how those things are intertwined. The cells, really, in order for them to grow and expand, they need to be built from the beginning in a certain way. And I was thinking about growth and thinking about an essay that I read a while ago, and I thought I should pull on my old cap again and, and become a literary correspondent once more. So I dug into the archives and pulled out an essay by J.B.S. Haldane, written in 1926. And he was a biologist, and he wrote a lot about sort of, he was sort of one of the early science communicators. And this essay of his is called On Being the Right Size. And it's about allometric scaling, which is a, a the official term for when, when we think about animal body types, that's sort of what the main topic of what I want to talk about today is. Think about a mouse and think about a rhino. They have obviously, uh, many differences in behavior and ecology, but one of the, the key underlying differences of how they work inside is their size, uh, the ways that their physiology works and the structure and, and formation of their skeletons and how everything sort of works together. The mouse and the rhino, very different, but they, of course, they're both herbivores, they're both four-legged, they're both mammals, but that's pretty much where the resemblances end. So I want to talk about what makes the optimal size for different body plans, or vice versa, what's the right body plan for different sizes? And that's what this essay talks about, and I, I just wanted to read a little intro paragraph here that, that brings it back, first from the human perspective, but we can have a sort of sense of where we're going. Um, and this mentions, I have to preface, by it mentions Pilgrim's Progress, uh, which is a, a book I never read, but it does. you don't need to have read it, I think, to get the, the, what's going on here. It's talking about giants. So, let us take the most obvious of possible cases and consider a giant man 60 feet high, about the height of giant Pope and giant pagan in the illustrated Pilgrim's Progress of my childhood. These monsters were not only ten times as high as Christian, the protagonist, I assume, but ten times as wide and ten times as thick, so that their total weight was a thousand times this, or about eighty to ninety tons. Unfortunately, the cross-sections of their bones were only a hundred times those of Christian, so that every square inch of giant bone had to support ten times the weight borne by a square inch of human bone. As the human thigh bone breaks under about ten times the human weight, Pope and Pagan would have broken their thighs every time they took a step. This was doubtless why they were sitting down in the picture, I remember. But it lessens one's respect for Christian and Jack the Giant Killer. So I think this really well introduces the idea of allometry. 
and, and allometric scaling or why things that are different sizes have different postures uh, and sort of the first thing we're talking about. When you think about a mouse, its feet are right under its body. They're pretty thin and they're bent in like a, like they, they could extend their legs long, like a cat too can do. Um, with a rhino, their legs are like pillars. They can't really bend them underneath them. They're stand there sturdy and strong and thick because they have to support for every extra pound that they add, their bones have to get double the thickness because the allometric, the sort of scaling effect is logarithmic. So what are the advantages then of small legs? And I have one more little passage that I want to read from this book before we dive into the difference between smallness and bigness. But don't worry, we won't stick with just the mammals. Um, but I thought this one was vivid for a science text. So I, I pulled this one out. It's a short paragraph. To the mouse and any smaller animal, gravity presents practically no dangers. You can drop a mouse down a thousand-yard mine shaft, and on arriving at the bottom, it gets a slight shock and walks away, provided that the ground is fairly soft. A rat is killed. A man is broken. A horse splashes. For the resistance presented to movement by the air is proportional to the surface of the moving object. Divide an animal's length, breadth, and height, each by ten. Its weight is reduced to a thousand, but its surface only a hundred. So the resistance to falling in the case of the small animal is relatively ten times greater than the driving force. Which is why things like ants can fall. They seem, seemingly take no fall damage. I think we've talked about this a bit in our podcast. That's not the only advantage that being small conveys. Many insects don't have lungs in the way that we think of them, or organs for breathing. They have hemo, they have pores all over the surface of the body that allow them to exchange gases with the environment just by osmosis. When you're small, you can do this. It's not so difficult. But when you're big like us, you need sort of many surfaces to do that gas exchange. And inside our lungs, we have a many, many folded surface that does that for us. So we take in air and exchange it on the many folded surface of our lungs. We had to build a special organ for that, whereas insects can just sort of have holes in their body and do it that way. But smallness doesn't only come with advantages. It sometimes comes with disadvantages. For example, the surface tension of water to a human causes no problem. We can get out of a bathtub and we'll have a, in, a layer of water around us about a one-fiftieth of an inch thick. But to an insect that gets wet, the weight of the water on its body comparable to its body size is more than many times its own weight. So it can often not get out and will eventually drown. That's why many bugs use proboscis to drink water. Now, let's think about largeness before we wrap up. One thing that comes from being large is the generation of heat. There's not as much heat lost in the surface of the body as the heat inside the body. So larger animals need to eat less to keep themselves warm. A mouse spends about a quarter. A mouse eats about one quarter of its own weight of food every day. And most of that is used in keeping it warm. One last advantage of size being big is that organs don't scale in the same way. So once the eye reaches a certain size, it does a pretty good job seeing. A mouse's eye is quite small and can't distinguish distance very well or things in the distance. But our eye and the eyes of things like dogs and cows and whales are all pretty similar in size. Because once the eye reaches that size, it can distinguish things to a reasonable degree. So the organs don't scale in the same way that the body do, the brain, the heart, the eye. And these things they need, you need to spend less energy on when you're developing when you're larger, proportionate to the rest of the body. So that's another advantage of growth and being big. So the next time you see a bird out in the wild, 
whether it's via a swan or a night parrot. Think about how its size affects the way it interacts with the world and the way its body is shaped. Well, I must say, Nick, my, uh, my thoughts on this is, as my thoughts often go to, are the insect world. And it's interesting that you mentioned those benefits to being small, because even though they're very, very small, they often try and get bigger. So insects are born from eggs, which are indeed very, very small. But you'll notice that some insects actually get pretty big. And there's a few different ways they can do this. And they have to do a slightly different way of growth than, than, than we are used to. Well, they undergo something called metamorphosis, which you might hear in relation to mammals, but is absolutely not the same thing and more uh, colloquial term for sort of a big change. Whereas insects will undergo a metamorphosis, which is quite amazing. And to do this, they have to molt. At some stage in their life, insects molt. So how do they do this? Because this is a very, very different way to how me and you grow. We rarely molt, I find. Although some people really do come out of their skin. (laughs) So they have to get out of their outer layer. So how do they do this? So I'll try and give you a really quick rundown. There's a hormone called 20-hydroxyectisone, which goes to the epidermal cells. And there's a reason it's called this, because the fancy word for uh, molting is ectisis. So that's where the hormone gets its name. And it's called the molting hormone. But basically, it goes to the epidermal layer and it causes the cuticle above to detach from this from this layer. It also causes epidemial cell growth, which is crucial because it means the layer underneath is now bigger than the layer on top. So they have they have achieved growth and the gap between them is digested. In fact, the gap between them up to 90 percent of some of the materials can be reused, which is quite amazing. So they're able to be reabsorbed into the insect and yeah, continued in their growth. So all insects go undergo some type of growth, but there's three types or three categories of metamorphosis found in insects. And remember, insects are a hugely diverse group of animals. Now, the first one is no metamorphosis. It's got the name amatabole. And amatabolism is a type of growth or a life cycle in insects and where there's no metamorphosis. So what it is, is just a gradual increase in size. So with each molting, the insect just gets slightly bigger, but looks the same. This is a very primitive form of growth in insects. And this is only really found in sort of the very primitive wingless insects. For example, silverfish. Silverfish undergo this type of metamorphosis. The next type is called hemimetaboly, And this is a partial metamorphosis. So what this is is there's various different instars, but they will look different. You'll be able to tell the difference between a juvenile nymph and the adult when it appears. They don't look identical or just like a smaller version of the other one. And the crucial difference between that and metabolism is that with this type, the hemimetabolous ones, once they are an adult, once they are that adult instar, that final appearance, they undergo no further molting. So the adult form never grows. That is its full size. There's there's no more molting in that regard. But this is where it gets cool. 45 to 60 percent of all known living species are hollow metabolin insects. Juveniles and adult forms are completely different. And you'll be really familiar with loads of these. And this is quite amazing because what it means is the children and the adults can occupy completely different ecological niches. And you can think this of like a maggot and a fly, where you find maggots and where you find flies, or caterpillars, where you find caterpillars and where you find butterflies. They will have completely different diets, so they're not competing with their own species. 
which is really, really clever. And this is what's thought to be that key driver in this sort of uh, diversification. Why there's so many of these? Because they're not competing with themselves. The earliest known fossil that can be considered this type of metamorphosis appeared about 280 million years ago. And what's crucial about them is there's four different stages. So the first one is the egg. Very easy. The second one is the larva. The third one is the pupa or chrysalis in things like uh, butterflies. And the final one, the adult form, is called the imago. According to the latest research, hollow metabolant insects are monophyletic, which means that this process of growth only evolved once, but is the vast majority of insects. That's super cool. Yeah, so just that one time, but it was so successful, it's in things as varied as flies, butterflies, beetles, all of these are using this, are wasps. So there's a short crash course in metamorphosis. Thanks, Nick. That's super cool. And I'm glad to see my enthusiasm catching on because, Naomi, I believe that you researched insects this week. <gasps> I did in a kind of roundabout way. So I actually was really on a plant kick this week. So my this topic is also plants, but insects are also evolved, but but not just insects. So what I wanted to talk about was galls. And no, I don't mean asterisk and oblic. I wanted to talk about plant galls. So did you practice that? I did, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what these are is another organism attacks or penetrates the plant in some way and causes the host to change the configuration of their cells and develop an abnormal growth. So... There's many different things that cause galls. As Nick mentioned, insects are one, mites, parasites, viruses, fungi, and bacteria can also be known to cause galls. And they can also have a really particular structure and shape. So they can actually be really easy to identify what is causing the gall just from looking at it. So you don't have to see what it is that's causing it to know what kind of gall it is. Why do they create these galls? Basically, they provide a shelter. They are a combination of food and protection from predators. And it is a parasitic relationship. So the invader gets a benefit because they're getting shelter and the host is harmed because their resources are getting taken away. Although having said that, it doesn't seem like it causes a huge amount of harm to certain plants. So many plants can survive with lots of galls on them and be perfectly fine. So I want to look at specifically how they form. And I will say again, I got very bogged down in really technical stuff. So again, I'll just give a very brief overview because this is something that's also very complicated and is something that's, again, not fully understood. So there's a couple of different ways that cause the plant to form these galls. So it's basically created by the manipulation of hormones in the plant that causes abnormal growth. So the gall inducer can directly synthesize the hormone in the plant. The inducer can also induce the host to make more of its own hormones, or the inducer can make more hormones get brought to this site, or the the inducer, so the gall former, can modify the host genetically and cause a synthesis of the hormone. So it's all about the manipulation of hormones to make this growth. So they have showed this in different in different groups of gall formers. So for example, the bacterium Pseudomonas savastanoi directly produces a type of auxin. So again, like I mentioned in my earlier section, and this direct accumulate 
accumulation has been shown to be responsible for gall formation. So one particularly well-known type of gall formation is oak galls. So this is something that, that's quite common, and these are quite a good gall specialist. So these would be include gall midges, gall flies, and gall wasps. So this would be maybe a kind of a familiar gall that you might see, the oak apple, and it's caused by a tiny wasp. And there's hundreds of uh, species of oak gall wasps, and they make a, a, a fantastic variety of these galls. And a single oak tree could support thousands of galls. Another cool thing as well that can happen is other species could move into the gall. Even if they don't make them, they could lodge in them and get benefit from them. So these are called inquilinus, which is Latin for lodger or tenant. And then the cool interaction that can happen with galls is that parasitoids can also attack the galls and the insects in the galls. So another animal can parasitize the parasite of the plant. So it, it can get really complicated in the heat interactions. For my final point, I wanted to mention one specific type of gall, because this is something that you've probably actually seen, because I think I have, and I, I didn't realize that it was gall. It's called witch's broom. So there's lots of different causes in different types of trees. It can be quite common in birch, and in downy birch, it's caused by the fungus, Tafarina betulina. And basically, this is a growth of offshoot. It actually kind of looks a little bit like a bird's nest. So it's lots of shoots that come out of a, a branch. And they look all like a mass of different shoots and offshoots. And basically, this is, again, the auxin is being manipulated to cause these offshoots. But yes, this can be caused by lots of different organisms. And it might actually be something that you've, that you've seen, particularly now when the trees are bare, you might notice it. That's cool. I really like it when we have a call to action, when people can actually go out and look for something. So thanks, Nose. Now we have reached our final topic, but it's not really the end for everyone. But this topic very much is the end for certain things. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, I wanted to start off with a question and ask you guys, what do autumn, dried flowers, our fingers and toes, scabs, and newborn babies all have in common? My favorite foods. Excellent. Excellent. Horrifying, but excellent. Scabs and dried flowers, especially. I'm going to ignore the babies. So they all have something to do. It's There's a couple of words, uh, terms for this. The technical term is apoptosis, but we'll get into that in a moment. But the more common or the vernacular is programmed cell death. And it's something that you may have heard of before talking about biology classes, but in what context and when it happens, it, it ha it's a huge variety of things. But today I want to talk mostly about the term itself and what it refers to, and then uh, a bit of our changing understanding of it. So there's two different types of cell death. There's necrosis and apoptosis. And necrosis is something that for a long time has seen has been seen as something unnatural, unexpected, or unwanted in the cell or by the organism, whereas apoptosis is sort of seen as like, well, this is supposed to happen now, and it's conducted by internal mechanisms, um, the destruction of the cell. It happens most clearly, I think we can think of leaves falling in autumn. When a leaf, you know, if the leaf is just about ready to fall right at the base of its stem, it feels like you could almost just pick it right off, and it comes 
like you don't have to break or or like tear anything. It just comes right off the stem. That's the result of apoptosis. So the cells in between the, the leaf and the stem die. And as they die, they sort of one by one sever their connection to each other until finally they've sealed off both sides on either side, the stem and the leaf. And then wind or, you know, us walking by pulling on the leaf pulls it up. And the same thing happens with flowers. If you have a, a lovely tulip in your, I don't know, in your kitchen window, eventually the tulip bulbs will bloom and then the flowers will die. And as the flowers die, it reaches a point where the flowers will fall off. And the falling off is the same thing. It's this apoptosis. And actually, the word apoptosis in Greek, in ancient Greek, means falling off. But the term itself, the root to coming to now, how we use it today in, in sort of medical and biological science, has taken a sort of circuitous, twisty route. Now, in the 1970s, some researchers coined the term to describe new, a new genetic process that was being uncovered at that time in the world of genetics, this idea that cells can sort of be, eventually have a lifespan and be programmed to die. And they said, well, we, we've taken this with the ancient Greek and we're using it for this term and we're coining the term. And it went on that way for a while. And people sort of thought like, great, great, good term. We'll use it. And then in only recently, um, someone sort of uncovered these texts by early doctors, Hippocrates and Galen, these Greek doctors from days of yore, and saw that they used the same term to describe nearly the same thing. So Hippocrates and Galen were also using apoptosis to describe the falling off of leaves and the falling off of scabs, which happens in a similar way. When we have a scab, it, it grows over, uh, the sort of cells grow over the wound to protect it. And when the wound underneath is healed, the scabbed cells die and they sort of separate themselves from the skin and eventually will come off naturally without tearing or ripping the skin below. So that sort of cell death in scabs happens the same way. New baby newborns are brought in because their umbilical cords have this programmed cell death in them. And the connection with the mother when after the baby is born separates naturally without ripping or tearing anything by that layer of cells in between having this cell death programmed into it. The last thing that I want to mention was that this one was really new to me and kind of foreign to think about, but apoptosis happens even in the development of embryos. So this programmed cell death can happen as early, even before something, something is born. It happens in our fingers and our toes. Originally, the end of our forearm is webbed. And as we develop in the, in the, in the womb, the webbed skin between our fingers dies and thus our fingers separate into what we have now. Luckily, it doesn't continue up the palm because otherwise, you know, then we wouldn't have palms. But uh, it's sort of a similar process. You can think of like those the digits being connected by a layer of cells, and like the cells in between the stem and the leaf, they're programmed to die at a certain stage in the embryonic development. And thus, we have not mittens, but hands. So I know it's a it's not really it is in many ways it's growth, uh, but it's growth in a direction that we don't usually think of growth. Um, it's growth towards the separating of things or towards the ending of things often only in one part of the body, but it can also be sort of hijacked by agents of disease. Viruses, especially retroviruses, use this sort of senescence or apoptosis or programmed cell death and, um, as the mechanism for reproduction, which can cause many diseases that we know. Yeah. That does bring us to an end. We have programmed podcast death now. 
<laughs> it's for the best. It's for the best. It is. It is. But listeners, we'll be back next week with our theme for our special 52nd episode is Cycles. Made it around. We did. One, once around the sun. So please do join us again. But for this week, from all of us, goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye. Okay, eliminate me.